As we begin this new year, I thought of taking a break from our regular studies in the book of Genesis to look at a passage in the book of Psalms. As you think of God's Word, what, what is the kind of attitude you bring when you read and study the Bible? What is the outlook? What is the goal that you come to it with? Do you treat it just as a book that is filled with information so you can take it in, fill your mind with it, perhaps win some arguments, and then move on? Or is it just one of the list of to-dos on your day or in your week, so when it's done, you can say, you know, check, that one is done. Do you think of it as a good activity, a noble activity to be involved in, so that your day goes well or your week goes well, like a good luck charm? Or do you come to it thinking of it as truly God's word, and you come to it with an intention to hear from God and to know him and to please him and to be like him? Now, that was certainly the goal of the psalmist as, you, as he begins even uh, the, the book of Psalms. Now, of course, we know that there's not one author, but predominantly it's David who has written almost half of the Psalms that we have in our Psalter. Uh, but the psalmist, as we begin this particular uh, time together, begins in Psalm 1. The very first Psalm, it, it says, we don't know who the author is, uh, it says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers." Uh, the prosperity, the blessedness is not the goal here. It's the result of pursuing God. It's a result of delighting in the law of God and meditating on, on that law day and night. That is thinking about God's word and letting, the, letting that, that is God's word, impact every aspect of your life. Uh, the psalmist understood the priority of God's word, the importance of the word of God in the life of a believer, and so as we come to the beginning of this new year, I want to take a few minutes to put first things first and consider with you the first eight verses of Psalm 119. So turning your Bibles to Psalm 119, it's almost at the center of the Scriptures. As you make your way there, let me make a couple of comments by way of introduction. Psalm 119, as you well know, is the longest of the 150 Psalms, very closely placed to the shortest psalm in the Bible, which is Psalm 117. This psalm, just the one chapter of Psalm 119, is longer than 30 entire books of the Bible. And the way that it is divided is that there are 22 paragraphs or stanzas uh, consisting of eight verses each. So 22 multiplied by eight, you get 176 verses. And each of these stanzas starts with the same Hebrew alphabet. That is, the first stanza starts with the first Hebrew alphabet, which is Aleph. And then the second stanza starts with the second Hebrew alphabet. And each verse in that particular stanza starts with that same alphabet. And so the first section that we will look at today 
all of those verses in the Hebrew Bible starts with the first alphabet of the Hebrew language, which is Aleph. So it's, in that sense, it's an acrostic psalm. Now, there is no hidden meaning or mystery to arranging it that way. It was simply a Hebrew poetical kind of device, a device of poetry, which aided in memory. And so God's people memorized uh, this psalm and others, and uh, what helped them in memorizing psalms was that, in, and this one in particular, is that the first word in each of those stanzas starts with the same Hebrew alphabet. Now, that doesn't always work exactly that way in English, but there are many in the history of the church who have memorized Psalm 119. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, a known pastor, in his commentary on this psalm mentions a few names. He mentions David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa, who memorized this entire psalm when he was nine and received as an uh, as a award for, uh, for this particular activity uh, a Bible from his Sunday school teacher. Uh, there is William Wilberforce, uh, the great British statesman and parliamentarian who was largely responsible, as many of you know, for the abolition of the slave trade throughout the then huge and uh, uh, just great British empire, a monumental achievement to stop the slave trade. He is recorded as writing in his diary in the year 1819, which is almost 200 years back. He writes this, Walked today from the Hyde Park Corner, this is in London, repeating the 119th Psalm in great comfort. Boyce, the pastor that I mentioned earlier, he goes on to say, each of these persons achieved a great deal for God. Who is to say that it was not their personal word-for-word -word knowledge of the Bible that enabled them not only to live a godly life, but also to accomplish what they did? Well put. So that's one thing, the length of it and the structure of it. But there's another thing that you will notice from this particular psalm. Almost all of the verses include some reference to the scripture or to the law of God. The scholars tell us that out of the 176 verses, 171 verses include some reference to the word of God, uh, to the statutes, to the judgments, to the testimonies. But it's not always the same word that the psalmist uses. In fact, he is so overwhelmed with God's word that one word doesn't do justice to what he is trying to share with us. He uses at least 10 different words. I have a copy here, and uh, it'll be on the slides. I'll show it to you later on. But there are at least eight that he uses with a larger amount of regularity. One of the words that we will face in verse 1 itself is the word law. And that is the Hebrew word Torah, which means to teach or to direct. It's a revelation or the law of God. Many times it's in reference to particularly the first five books of the Bible, but it could also be in reference to the entire Old Testament scriptures. Then there is the word testimonies, or also translated as witness. This is the outspokenness of the scriptures because of its high standards and frank warnings that are given uh, it is a faithful and a true witness. Then there is the word precepts. Uh, this is drawn from the sphere of the armed forces where the officer or the overseer had to be one who paid close attention to details. Precepts. So the word points to the particular instructions of the Lord as of one who cares about the details. Precepts. Then there is the word statutes. Uh, this, these are the binding 
uh, force or permanence of the scripture is in view here. So think of a, uh, of a thing on which something is engraved. When something is engraved, it's there more permanently than for a shorter period of time. Statutes has that kind of an understanding. Then there is the word commandments. Uh, this comes from someone who is in a position of authority. Uh, right, this person has the right to give ordinances or orders. Then there's the word ordinances. Uh, this word is also translated as judgments. Uh, then there's the word word itself. Uh, this is the most general term for all of God's truth that is mentioned in the scriptures. We also have the word promise and another word that is translated as word. So you could see that the psalmist uses many different words to describe the same reality, which is God's word, the scriptures. Or for us today as New Testament believers, the Bible. There are two other words that the psalmist uses, not with as much frequency, but he does use them. One is the word the ways, the ways of the Lord, or the paths of the Lord. And because no one word fully grasps the magnitude and the depth and the, and the breadth of, help, uh, of, of what God's word is, the psalmist uses different words to help us understand the importance of the word of God. So with that, let's begin by reading this first section. I'll read the first three verses of this first stanza. How blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. The psalm, you see, begins very similarly uh, to Psalm 1, uh, particularly as you zoom in on the word blessed. Blessed. And so many commentators actually have said that Psalm 119 is actually an exposition of Psalm 1. It expands on what Psalm 1 is saying. Both begin by telling us the blessed man, the blessed woman, is one who focuses on the Word of God as the key. And so I've titled our lesson for tonight, The Blessedness of Obeying God's Word. The Blessedness of Obeying God's Word. I want to share with you uh, three things from this first stanza. Uh, first of all, the joy of obeying God's word. We'll look at that from verse 1 to verse 3. Secondly, we'll look at the duty of obeying God's word from verse 4 to verse 6. And then finally, the outcome of obeying God's word, verse 7 to verse 8. So joy, the duty, and the outcome of obeying God's word. First of all, the joy of obeying God's word. Uh, notice verse 1 Again, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Here we see this particular psalmist, this individual is one who is marked by his devotion to God's word. You know, one of the clearest marks of a blessed life is its devotion to God's word. You want to be a blessed man this year? You want to be a blessed woman this year? Show it by your devotion to God's word. The verse begins with the expression, Oh, the blessedness of. And then it portrays the spiritual and heavenly blessing of those who are right with God. Now, if you were to do a survey in the area that you live in, if you were to do a survey in South Lake, for example, or where you live, and if you were to ask 10 individuals 
what is the goal of your life? A majority of them would say, I want to be happy. I want to be happy. Happiness. You know, world's terminology for the scriptural term, blessedness. Given an option, most of us do want to be happy. Right? There is something not normal about a person who does not want to be happy. But how does the world pursue happiness? Uh, some think that they will be happy if they have just enough money. Others pursue happiness by saying that if they had the respect that they deserved at work, they would be happy. Others, happiness comes through the power of their position. If I was just promoted to this next position and the power that I'll get from it, I will be a happy man. I'll be a happy woman. While others, to them, they need someone to love them without any strings attached, without any commitments. That's what would make them happy. But the Bible says that none of those pursuits and achievements ensure happiness because sin, as one author puts it, always warps and destroys even the best achievements. So how then can we be blessed? How can we be truly happy? We can be happy, we can be blessed if our life conforms to the word of God. Here in verse 1, it's described as the one who walks in the law of the Lord. The word there for law is the word Torah, the one that I've mentioned earlier. Uh, these are the teaching from God's word, the directions from God. And it was one that was used to describe the first five books of the Bible in particular. But it's also something that can be applicable to the entire Old Testament. Uh, to walk in the way of the Lord or to walk in the law of the Lord was to know the law of the Lord and then to do according to the law of the Lord. In other words, the walk in the law of the Lord, that means you are to obey the word of the Lord. A true happiness, true blessedness is found in obeying God's law, in being devoted to God's word. Uh, what does such a devotion to God's word do to how one conducts himself? You see, a life that is devoted to the word of God and obeys the word of God is described here in verse 1 as a blameless life. Uh, the truly blessed life is the one whose way is blameless, undefiled, the one who is undefiled, the one who is whole and wholly innocent. The blameless man, the blameless woman is the one who is forgiven of his or her sins. Isn't it Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2, the psalmist writes, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The truly blessed life then is the one that is without blame and the one without blame, the one who is not defiled, is the one whose sins are forgiven, one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Such a man is described in the scriptures. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but John, Job chapter 1 verse 1 says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Now, this man was devoted to the word of God, and his life is characterized by blamelessness, undefiled. Not only is such an individual devoted to God's word, he is devoted to God himself. Notice verse 2, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. 
The blessed man is not only devoted to God's word, but is devoted to the one who is the author of those words. Uh, verse 2 is what is understood as Hebrew parallelism, which is an idea or a thought that is rephrased or repeated or builds on or is put in the negative to the previous line. Uh, that is done to emphasize the point that the author wants to make. The blessed man, again, verse 2 starts with the same phrase. The blessed man is the one who walks in the law of the Lord, verse 1, is the one who observes his testimonies. With the word testimony, what is in mind is really the frankness and the objectivity with which the Bible speaks. It lays high standards and it cl clearly lays out all the warnings. If you obey, you will be blessed. That was very clear to the Israelites in the Old Testament. If you disobey, you will be judged. And you will be judged regardless of the position you occupy in the line. It doesn't matter if you were a layman or an elder. It didn't matter whether you were a man or a woman. All of them were under the authority of God's word. You know, in secular history of the world, the Magna Carta, the great charter that was signed by King John of England on June 15, 1215, it was one of the key documents that first introduced the idea that the monarch of the land, the king, supposedly the highest authority of the land, also must follow the law of the land. The law was higher than the king. Similarly, here in our own country, the leaders and citizens are governed by the Constitution. We live under the law. That's what observing his testimonies means. It means live under its authority. It means to be that it means that we are governed by his word. It's as, as Spurgeon puts it, we actually live under its power. Here's another characteristic then of the blessed man. He is devoted at the end of verse 2, not only to his word, but he's also devoted to him. The Bible is not worship. There's no biblio-idolatry taking place, but the author of the Bible is worshipped. The blessed man seeks the author with all his heart. You know, when a lawyer asked Jesus, which is the great commandment of the law, which is which is that command which, which summarizes all the 600 plus commandments or laws given in the Old Testament? And our Lord quoted from the great Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.5, and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. You can observe his testimonies when you seek him with all your heart. You can walk in the law of the Lord when you seek him with all your heart. Notice one other thing here. The seeking is done with all of the individual's heart. Uh, there is no half-hearted effort here. Uh, there is no pursuing God with a divided heart. Uh, but a broken heart, yes, absolutely. You bring that to the Lord and he heals it. But a divided heart, one which is not able to make or wanting to make a decision one way or the other, uh, there is no place for such a heart. No, when you come to the Lord, you're to be all in when you seek him. Devoted to his word, devoted to him, and finally devoted to his ways, verse 3. They also do no unrighteousness, they walk in his ways. Now the psalmist continues in describing the life of the blessed man. We are still with the blessed man. They seek the Lord with their whole heart. They're completely occupied with understanding and then doing the Lord's will. And the effect of their obedience is that they do no unrighteousness. They do no wrong. You know, the first two verses focused on knowing 
the Word of God, knowing the Bible, this verse, verse 3, focuses on keeping the Word of God or obeying the Word of God. You see, God's way is the way of righteousness, and He does righteous, righteously because He Himself is a righteous God. Uh, that is His very character. The blessed man, then, is to be like his God doing righteous things. You see, a child of God will be devoted to his word. A child of God will be devoted to him. And a child of God will be devoted to God's ways. Uh, Psalm 119 verse 129 says, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. They're not burdensome. You know, if they feel burdensome, we can go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for for his help. James 1.25, James writes, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. We are to be devoted to his ways. We are to be obeying his ways. Uh, talking about obedience, our Lord said in John 14.15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, that is, that it will be the inclination of your heart. Will keep my commandments perfectly? No. In direction, yes. The inclination of your heart and my heart needs to be that I want to obey the Lord. And then when I sin, I can go to him confessing my sins and asking him for forgiveness and that he is righteous and just and that he forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In the same book that I was just quoting, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, John writes, No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Not that we will never sin, but the inclination of the heart of the child of God would be towards hating sin and rejecting it. Have nothing to do with it. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You know, if there's one thing that we can take away from these first three verses, it is this, that for a child of God, it's truly a joy to obey God's word. Uh, it's, it's, this individual is called a blessed individual. Uh, there is joy in obeying God's word. And not only is there joy and delight in obeying God's word, secondly, as we look at the next couple of verses, it is our duty to obey God's word. Here's a slide that I was referring earlier with regards to the different words, and I'll, I'll put that uh, when I upload the slides. But secondly, the duty of God's word. You see, understanding the duty of obeying God's word places, under, places us rather under the obligation to do according to what we are learning. Notice verse 4 to verse 6. You, that is God, have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. Notice verse 4. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. The first word in that sentence is the word you. Same as in English as it is in Hebrew as well. And the placement of that word at the beginning signifies to us the importance. It's saying you. Yes, you have ordained your precepts. Uh, ESV starts this way. It says, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. The New English translation translates it this way. You demand that your precepts be carefully kept. The New King James Version says it. 
puts it this way, you have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Uh, this is not a suggestion. Uh, this is not something that you can say, well, when I have some good time, when I'm going through good times, that's when I will obey. No, these, these are commands. These are demands from God on our life. God is the source of his word, and he has created us, and he alone can make demands on our life. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Everything that exists in the world belongs to our great God, including you and me. And he alone can make demands on your life and mine. In stating that you have ordained your precepts, the psalmist really is affirming the divine authorship of the scriptures as well. You have ordained your precepts. The scriptures, you see, come from God. He is the one who has given it. It's not man who has come up with these words. This is not man's idea or man's invention. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God would be equipped, would be adequate and equipped for every good work. All scripture is inspired by God. Uh, Peter, in his epistle, writes this, 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, because it was from God, nothing was to be added or taken away from it. Uh, Deuteronomy 12.32, the Lord says this, Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add nor take away from it. The scriptures then, the Bible then, is God's word, and it comes from him through the pen of human authors. But notice then the response in recognition of this divine authority, the second part of verse 4. We are to keep it diligently. We're not to make our own laws. We're not to come up with our own laws. You know, we're not to manufacture new laws when we don't like what is in the Bible. No, your job, my job, is to keep the law diligently. It is to keep the word of God. We are not to manufacture new laws, but we are to keep the laws that already exist. For us to keep the word of God, for you and me to keep the word of God, we need to first know the word of God. And it's particularly sad sometimes when I talk to some of the single adults and perhaps others who uh, get a chance of counseling. What, what do you read? How much time do you spend in God's Word? Well, I don't read much of the Bible. I read a lot of Reformed systematic theology. Really? That itself is dependent on God's Word. Why not go to the source? Why not go to God's Word itself? John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. For this is the love of God, 1 John 5, 3, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You know, one of the most blessed, truly, if I can use the word joy, one of the most joyful people in the world are people who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God commands and they submit to him and his commandments are not burdensome. No, they're a joy to follow. We love God and we want to do everything to please and exalt him through our life. We are to know the word of God. We are to keep the word of God. 
and we have to also teach the Word of God to others. Now, not everyone will get a chance to formally teach like some of us do, but we are all teaching God's Word in different settings. In fact, that is the Great Commission, isn't it? Matthew 28, 19, 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. First of all, recognizing God's authority. My job is not to entertain you. I think I would do a terrible job of that. My job is not to tell you things you necessarily want to hear or like to hear. My job is to take from God's word what he has written and then bring it to you to help us to keep it. First of all, then you recognize God's authority. Secondly, you repent of known and unknown transgressions as you consider the duty of obeying God's word. Verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. The psalmist here expresses a heartful, heartfelt prayer as he communicates with God. I want to keep your law, O Lord, but I don't do it perfectly. Here is one who has tried to keep the whole law and has stumbled at one point and become guilty of it all. My ways, O Lord, are not always in keeping with your statutes. Another word for scriptures as we looked at before. Uh, statutes, as I mentioned, if you remember, conveys a binding force, something that is permanent. And here the psalmist is perhaps bringing to mind the words of God that were engraved or inscribed on a stone. Uh, there is a certain permanence that is conveyed when something is engraved. It's not as if it's written on a paper and with exposure to rain and weather, the writing has eroded. No, the statutes of God are more like the words that are engraved in a stone. They are permanent. Uh, the picture is, some, is of something that is abiding and long-lasting. The Bible that you hold in your hands is the same Bible that was held for the last 2,000 years after the completion of the New Testament canon. There's been no addition to it, and there has been no subtraction from it. It's a, it's a, the picture is of one that is abiding and long-lasting. You see, the psalmist is a godly man, but he's also aware of how ungodly he can be. He wants to be like the blessed man that he has just described in the first three verses, but he's not there yet. And what is between where he is and where he needs to be is his sin, his defiled life, his unrighteousness, his iniquity. That's why he cries out, Oh, that my ways may be established. Isaiah 59 verse 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So how do we get from here to, to here? And the way to get from here to where he needs to be is through repenting of the known and the unknown transgressions. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. You know, we see these things in normal human relationships as well. If you have sinned against someone, or if someone has sinned against you, and there is no reconciliation, then there is no healthy relationship. A relationship is hurt if there is no reconciliation. Now, if that is true of human relationships, how much true is it of our relationship with our holy and heavenly Father? If there is no forgiveness, there is no reconciliation. And if there is no reconciliation, there is no relationship. And so the psalmist expresses a desire 
a cry of the heart to be reconciled with God by confessing his transgression. Oh, that my ways may be established. Notice a few things about what true confession looks like. And notice the honesty. He knows that he's not right with God. The more you couch your sins in different languages trying to hide it, the more difficult it will be to really accomplish reconciliation. The more quickly you admit that you have sinned, the more quicker the reconciliation. There is, first of all, then honesty. But secondly, there is a desire. I know I need to be right with God. I know I need to be right. Please, as I am thinking of this, there is a desire that I, I, I need to be right with this holy God. And only a cheap grace wants forgiveness without repentance. It just wants to be forgiven, but it doesn't want to repent of the sins that it has committed. There is then an, a desire. There's honesty, there's desire, and then finally there is petition. Oh God, I know I'm not right. I know I need to be right, so please would you forgive me. I repent of my life. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. You see, we need God's help to live the kind of life that we ought to live. You cannot accomplish this in your own strength. Firstly, recognizing God's authority. Secondly, repenting of known and unknown transgression. Thirdly, remembering the consequences. Notice verse 6. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. You know, we are free moral agents. We have the ability to choose. We can choose that which is right and that which is wrong. We can choose between that which is good and that which is evil. Like H.B. Charles says, we are free to do what we want, but we are not free to do what we ought. This is because we live in a fallen world and our, fa our faculties, our moral faculties have been marred by sin. We behave as if this is not true, and then we go on to ignore the consequences of our choices. But if you want to obey God and to obey His commandments, we have to remember the results, the consequences of our actions. When we disobey God, it produces shame. Shame, as one author wrote, is a result of sin, and confidence is a result of righteousness. You want to live confident lives, obey God's word. Keep your conscience clear. Wasn't it Adam who God interacted with in Genesis chapter 3 when he asked him, where are you, Adam? And he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. When we disobey God's word, it produces shame. Wasn't it Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17 verse 13? He writes, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Wasn't it Ezra, the scribe, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 6, he said, Oh my God, I'm ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, for your iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. See, when we disobey God's word, it produces shame. But obedience to God's word prevents shame. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon your commandments. It's H.B. Charles again who writes, There is a way to avoid the, same, the shame of sin that tortures your mind 
There's a way to avoid the shame of sin that reddens your cheeks, hangs your head, burdens your heart, droops your shoulders, ruins your reputation, and troubles your steps. And it is this. Fix your eyes and focus your steps on the word of God. Well put. In John's letter, he writes, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. When you disobey God's word, it produces shame, but obedience to God's word prevents shame. Now, as you reflect on these first six verses what we have, and what we have learned so far, a picture emerges of an individual that is truly blessed. What does a blessed individual look like? He is blameless, verse 1. Again, verse 1, he walks in the law of the Lord. A blessed individual is one who observes God's testimonies. He seeks God's with, God with all his heart. He does no unrighteousness. He walks in God's ways perfectly. He, walks, he keeps God's precepts diligently. He keeps God's statutes, and he's never ashamed. You know, as you consider this list, you recognize and conclude that this is a difficult standard to meet. This is a high wall to climb. This is an impossible test to, to pass. We cannot, in our own efforts, measure up to this particular guideline. I quote back Psalm 32, which I mentioned earlier, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But who is such a man, and how do we get to be such a man? The answer is given to us in Romans chapter 4. Why don't we turn there, Romans chapter 4. Notice what Paul writes to the Romans, recorded for us in God's Word, Romans chapter 4, verse 5 to verse 8. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. In other words, your works won't get you to be declared as righteous in front of a holy God. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. What a wonderful truth that is. How does he do that? He does that because of his son. He, that is the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, lived the life that we should have lived. And he died on our behalf. And his death is the only perfect sacrifice that is acceptable to God. You know, in the history of the world, there's only one man who has truly been blessed. One man who has perfectly kept God's law, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And through his life and death and resurrection, we are declared righteous when we place our faith in him. Our lawless deeds, the scripture says, are forgiven. Our sins have been forgiven, and the Lord does not take our sins into account anymore. You see, if you are in Christ, you are a blessed man. If you are in Christ, you are a blessed woman. And all of the things we have talked about, you're able to do because of the Holy Spirit that resides in you. Uh, that is the very one who we are sealed with, Ephesians chapter 1, who dwells permanently in us. 
Now, do we do this perfectly? Do we live this kind of a life perfectly? No, we don't. We don't do it perfectly because we've not been yet rescued from the presence of sin. The Bible calls the particular aspect of us that deals with sin as flesh. Until we are in the flesh, we will sin, but we don't have to. We're now free to walk in God's ways. We are free to obey Him because we have been declared righteous and the Holy Spirit resides in us. As Stephen Yule, in his commentary on this section, mentions this and explains it better than I could put in words, he says, because of our union with Christ, we now seek to walk in God's ways. We need to be careful, he says, in unpacking what this means because there's a twofold obedience in Scripture. There is the legal obedience that is perfectly obeying God's will. And then there is the gospel obedience, sincerely seeking to obey God's will. We must grasp three things, he says. First of all, Christ alone has obeyed in the first sense. He obeyed God fully, perfectly, and completely. Second, God considers us to have obeyed in the first sense because we are one with Christ through faith. And thirdly, we now obey in the second sense. That is, we sincerely seek to obey God and are quick to repent of our sin when we fail. Don't keep long accounts with God. You recognize you have sinned, take it to the Lord. Confess your sins, and He is just and righteous to forgive you of your sins. Because of our union with Christ, He says, we now seek to walk in God's ways. The joy of obeying God's word, the duty of obeying God's word, thirdly and finally, the outcome of obeying God's word. The outcome of obeying God's word, verse 7 and verse 8. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. I shall give thanks to you with the uprightness of my heart. I will praise you with a sincere heart. And there's a hint in verse 6 for the reason of the praise. It's because he has, been, he has not been put to shame. You see, God's word produces singing and praising and rejoicing in the Lord. And the word that is used there for God's word is righteous judgments. Verse 7. When I learn your righteous judgment. And what that implies and indicates is the perfect unity of its dealings with man. You see, God's judgments are always righteous judgments because he always deals justly. Uh, that is, he rewards obedience and he punishes disobedience. God, in that sense, is a just God. He's a God who is fair in all of his dealings. He does what is right. But what kind of a praise is this in verse 7? Uh, this is the highest kind of praise that is offered to God. How come it is the highest kind of praise? It is the highest because it comes from an upright heart. And this is not merely a praise from the lips. It's a praise from the inside, a praise from the heart, and that too, an upright heart. But notice that there are six verses that precede this verse 7. And the point is that you and I cannot praise God as we ought to 
without first knowing him as we ought to. And we cannot know him as we ought to without first knowing his word. Now don't get me wrong. God does display his presence and his existence outside the Bible through his creation, through the conscience that he has placed in each one of us. But his most clearest, his most special, and his most specific means of communication to us is through his word. I paraphrase Martin Luther who said, Lord, don't give me visions. Don't send angels to me because your word is sufficient. God's word tells us that he is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That is, our worship of him, our praise of him is grounded in what he has objectively revealed about himself in his word. You see, emotions divorced from revelation is not worship no matter how sincere and authentic it may sound. You and I can praise God as we ought to when we know his word. Is your desire to worship our great God? Then do, do that by getting to know him. And you get to know him by getting to know his word. Secondly and finally, obedience to God's word results in prayer. Notice verse 8. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Uh, there is a resolve here, the first part of verse 8, and then there is a prayer that follows. The psalmist here resolves to keep God's word. As we begin this new year, what a great resolution this is. Lord, I desire, Lord, my ambition for this year is that I would be uh, one who keeps your word. I would know more of your word, and knowing more of your word, O oh Lord, my desire is that I would keep your word. And then in the last sentence, the psalmist there recognizes that he cannot keep God's word in his own strength. And so he wants, he desires, he needs God's help to keep, keep God's statutes. Oh Lord, don't let go of me, don't forsake me. In his desire, he is desperate for God's help. Now, that is the same principle that is carried over in the New Testament, isn't it? We cannot live the kind of life that God has called us to live in our own strength. And so the more desperately you try, the more desperately you fail. And we and I fail, it's, it's because we don't seek God's help in doing what he's called us to do. Isn't it Paul again who writes in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, So then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the writer says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and, uh, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the same, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are called to live a godly life. We are called to represent Christ in everything that we do, and we cannot do it in our own strength. We need God's help. And so I close with the same question that I began with when we began looking at this scripture, what is the attitude, the goal that you come to scriptures with? 
In his book, Taking God at His Word, Kevin DeYoung actually observes about Psalm 119. He says, reading Psalm 119 actually provokes usually three reactions. He says, the first is, yeah, right. Uh, this is the attitude, he says, of the skeptic who doesn't find anything particularly compelling about God's Word in general, or Psalm 119 in particular. You see, he goes on to say to himself that, uh, you know, the word law and the word commandments and righteous precepts and statutes is repeated. Basically, it's essentially repeating 176 times the same thing. Uh, that is the skeptic. But the second reaction is, ho-hum. I don't know exactly what he means. Perhaps he means, oh my, I mean, this is so huge. This is the attitude of the individual who might possess a high view of Scripture, but finds Psalm 119 tedious or irrelevant. Uh, this, by the way, uh, are common people, but also this, these are great scholars of God's Word. Augustine, for example, uh, when he was preaching through Psalms, he reached Psalm 118 and then went on to Psalm 120. He skipped Psalm 119 because it was so long and so tedious. But there is a third reaction. Yes, 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 he says. Uh, this is what believers express when the content of Psalm 119 resonates in their hearts. They think to themselves, I love this psalm because it gives voice to the song in my soul. I love this psalm because it gives voice to the song in my soul. Isn't it James who tells us that the word of God is like a mirror? And the more we look at the mirror, the more we see our actual condition. And the more we see our actual condition, the more we can go to our heavenly father, to his throne of grace and, to, and cry out to him for help, to help us be more like him. I love this psalm because it gives voice to the song in my soul. My, my prayer for all of us is that as we consider this psalm and God's word in general this year, that you will see yourself resonating with getting accurate pictures of where you are and that you will be encouraged to not only read it, study it, and apply it to your life so that you would be more conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Lord, truly desire, the desire of our heart is that we would be blessed, and we are blessed in the sense that we are in Christ. And we are thankful that none of our sins, past, present, and future, will be, that we will be held accountable for, because Christ took it on himself, and he died for each one of those, and that his righteousness is now imputed to us. It's it's given to us. We are declared righteous, and we are so thankful. Thankful for the joy of living for you while we are here on this earth. And while our external body is losing its strength every day, we are thankful that our inner self is being renewed. Every day is a day of excitement for us as we learn from your word and grow in your word. Now, truly, our, the desire of our heart is to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to that end, Lord, help us in this year to be more grounded in your word, to be not only hearer of your word, but be a doer of your word. We commit the rest of the evening into your hands. In Jesus' precious and worthy name, I pray. Amen.